Well, good morning. I'm so glad to be with you guys today. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Pastor Graham, and I'm the teaching pastor here. And welcome to those of you who are joining us online. I'm so glad you could be with us. We are starting a new series today, and I'm excited about this series. It's a little different from what we usually do. Uh, it's, a, it's a very pastoral series. It's very me being, cons- well, us being concerned about the state of you and your mind and your faith and a lot of what's going on. So I'm excited about it, but it might be a little bit different. So I hope, I hope you're up for it. I hope you're up for a little journey with us and what we're going to do. Let's pray and we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, thank you. So much to be thankful for today, God. Thank you for the occasion to celebrate Thanksgiving. Thank you for gathering with families. Thank you for the bounty of the harvest to eat. Lord, we pray for those who don't have family or don't have as much to eat. Lord, we pray that you would provide for them. We pray that you would be a father to the fatherless, that you would show yourself the Lord, the provider. We pray that you would open our hearts today to hear from you. You would open our minds, that you would keep us engaged, Lord, and that we would come to know you a little better, that you would strengthen our faith. In your name, amen. So our new series today is called Big Questions, and I want to take a few minutes to introduce the series and to pitch why it's important, because these topics are not going to be everybody's cup of tea, but it is something that's going to cross your path. It is something that's going to come up in your life, and I want us to be prepared for it. Now, doubt is a topic that comes up quite often in the Bible. And I don't know about you, but I feel like doubt comes up pretty often in my own life. There's a, there's a meme that I'm quite fond of that came from a game called L.A. Noir. The game features dynamic cutscenes where you're not really in command of your character, but every so often a prompt will come up on the screen where if you press the button, a character will perform the action. And there's a recurring option where the main character, who is a detective, is given the option to doubt the story given to him. And uh, so the the meme that's come out of this one, it says, press X to doubt. And this is something that seems to come up a fair bit. You hear something and we'll actually hear, um, hey, there's my friend Ryan who says this on the regular, press X to doubt. This is something that people say sometimes. And there are all kinds of things that we should doubt in life. And having doubts about our faith is normal. Though I don't know that I would go so far as to say that it is good. Faith, you see, isn't just a question of believing something blindly. To have faith is necessarily to have doubt. Just as you can't be brave without fear. Being brave isn't the absence of fear. Being brave is acting in spite of your fear. So I would say that faith isn't not having doubt. It's choosing to trust in spite of the doubt. But we aren't commanded to just blindly trust either. Last week when we talked about prayer, I brought up a checklist for Christian living that's found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. In verse 21 of that same passage, we find Paul telling us to test everything, hold fast to what is good. In that context, he's talking about prophecies specifically, but his advice holds for much of life and especially our faith life. Test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Another important theme from the Bible, in addition to the danger of doubt, is the importance of reason. Reasoning, using logic, making arguments is one of the ways that we can test everything 
and hold fast to what is good. It is part of how we shore up our doubts and stand in faith. It is certainly part of how we tear down strongholds and arguments and pretensions, as Paul says. Some Christians seem to think that when we walk into church, we should leave our brains at the door. Enough thinking, that's for the rest of time. Now it's time for faith. Well, I want to give you four examples from the Scripture about the use of reason in reinforcing faith. The first example that probably came to your mind was the example of doubting Thomas, found in John chapter 20, verses 24 to 27. This is after Jesus has already died and resurrected. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. What I love about this story is that Jesus doesn't scold Thomas for wanting to see the marks. In fact, he invites Thomas to explore exactly the reasons that he needs in order to believe. And then he uses that experience, that knowledge, as the reason to believe. Another great example is the Bereans from the city of Berea in Acts chapter 17, verse 11. Now, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Here's a passage for the nerds. That's me. God is applauding people who do their homework, who, well, maybe doubt is a strong word, but these people are at least going and making sure that what they're hearing matches against what they've been given in the scriptures. They are using their reason, and they are being described as having noble character. My personal favorite example is Dr. Luke. Look at the opening to his account of the gospel, Luke chapter 1, verse 1 to 4. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Eyewitnesses, careful investigation, an orderly account. And why? So that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. If that's not a ringing recommendation of the use of reason in bulwarking faith, I don't know what is. Lastly, the book of Isaiah opens with a lengthy speech by God, laying out the failure of Israel to be faithful to the covenant. Verse 18 is rendered in the King James, which many of us are familiar with, as, come, let us reason together. The NIV puts it as, let us settle the matter. But the point is the same. God is laying out a case, and he expects us to think and follow and reason and understand. Using reason isn't contrary to faith, and in fact, in many cases, it reinforces faith. 
So let's move on to this week's big question. Are the Bible and science in conflict? This is a good question. This is a scary question. I mean, we have a lot of reasons to like science. We know that so much of our lives today is a direct product of the advancements in technology and the scientific revolution that has brought about. Cell phones, weather prediction, cars, cameras and speakers and the internet, hi, people online, they're all a result of, the, of science. So much of what we've done this morning is a result of those advancements. So if we have a conflict between that and our Christianity, that's pretty daunting. And honestly, when people think that there is a conflict between science and the Bible, I get it. Like, I understand why people feel like they should be picking science. But can we reframe the question a little bit? Because I feel like, to me, this conflict basically boils down to one issue. I feel like mostly when we say the Bible and science are in conflict, what we're really talking about is creation and evolution. There are other little things, little questions like the dating of certain events, like the Exodus, or the role of the church in the, the Galileo affair, but none of those seem to carry the force and the primary place of the creation-evolution debate. Do you agree? Yeah? Nods? Okay, that helps. As an aside, I would point out that with the Galileo affair, the problem was not that the church's doctrines were contrary to the science. The problem was that the church had chosen to listen to the scientific consensus of the day, rather than to the actual scientific data that had been presented by Galileo. Galileo is the reason that I am skeptical of the phrase scientific consensus, but he's not a reason to be skeptical of the Bible when it comes to science. And as far as creation and evolution, up front, I don't know. I don't know where I stand on this issue. I have scientific questions about evolution, but I also have hermeneutical questions about the interpretation of those first chapters of Genesis. It's not clear. This issue isn't clear to me. But what's clear is this. This is a tiny issue in the Bible. So little of this text is devoted to this question, and it seems to affect very little. If anything, I'm far more concerned about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 2 and 3, than I am about a question of a literal six days in Genesis chapter 1. But do you know what question I'm really concerned with? Did Jesus rise from the dead? Because if Jesus rose from the dead, everything else takes second place at best. At best. If Jesus rose from the dead, if God took on flesh and became one of us and took the punishment for our sin and defeated death on the cross, then how exactly we came to be on the planet holds significantly less power as a defining question of our lives. Because if Jesus rose from the dead, then you can find everything else that claims to conflict with the Bible and you can prove it in absolute terms, but I will still be a Christian because the center of my faith is Jesus. Six days isn't the center. The dating of the Exodus or David or Abraham isn't the center. Jesus is the center. And for that, we have tremendous evidence. Jesus is in the historical category of men like Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar. We have more evidence for Jesus than we do for Can uh, Hannibal of Carthage, 
the guy who crossed the Alps with the elephants. We have more evidence for Jesus than for that guy. More. That's how much historicity Jesus has. His historicity is unassailable, despite what some trolls on the internet might think. To suggest that Jesus never existed is in fact a deeply unscientific proposal, and it's rooted in blind adherence to doctrine rather than following the evidence. And what's more, besides all the evidence for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, besides all the arguments that we could raise for the evidence of God, leaving aside things like the moral argument and the ontological argument and the cosmological argument, all of which are incredibly powerful as arguments alone, we would still have our experiences of God to lean on. I have met with God. I have been led by God. I have been ministered to by him. He has whispered to me in the dark and shouted to me in my pain. I have known God. Have you? Say amen if you've known God. Amen. How can anything then shake our confidence in him once we have known him? So if that aspect of the question is taken care of, then actually this is a question that we approach in faith, not in doubt. We may not have the full answer, but we know enough about the shape of the answer to know that this isn't a faith issue. So with all that as framework, let's ask, are the Bible and science really in conflict? The Bible has actually been a major help to the science of archaeology. The Hittite Empire was completely unknown except from the biblical text until about 100 years ago when we started doing archaeology and discovered this lost empire. Scholars had ridiculed the Bible and its made-up nations until it turned out the Bible was right. Another example is with the book of Acts, which takes place in the first century and contains many references to cities, Roman governors, officials, and all kinds of historical markers, things that happen in history. A prominent archaeologist, Sir William Ramsey, who was knighted for his contributions to this field, set out to the area of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, with the goal of examining many of the claims made by Luke in the book of Acts. What was his conclusion? Well, let's quote him. Quote Sir Ramsey. Further study showed that the book could bear the most minute scrutiny as an authority for the facts of the Aegean world and that it was written with such judgment, skill, art, and perception of truth as to be a model of historical statement. In fact, it is said that when Ramsey left for Asia Minor, he was a staunch atheist who wished to disprove the Bible, and by the time of his return, he was proclaiming Christ because of the truth that he'd found. Let's go one step further than simply that the Bible has been helpful to archaeology, and make a statement that will be controversial to many, but frankly, not controversial to those who are knowledgeable about the history of science. Christianity is the reason we have science today. Sure, there were bits and pieces in other parts of the world. A Zoroastrian developed algebra. The Chinese invented the compass. The Maya and the Inca did some amazing astronomy. And the Greeks did plenty of philosophy but none of them developed science. 
It is Christianity that fostered the assumptions necessary for science to become what we see today. For one thing, think about the great universities, Cambridge, Oxford, Paris, Florence. In fact, the very concept of a university. They were all founded in medieval Europe, the supposed Dark Ages. Not only were they founded then, but they were founded explicitly in Christian terms. For another, think about the great founding scientists, Gregor Mendel in, this, in the field of genetics, Johannes Kepler in astronomy, Isaac Newton in physics, Robert Boyle in chemistry. These men were critical to the beginnings of modern science, and they were all Christians. And I don't mean in the sense that they were culturally Christian. These guys were very serious about their faith. Gregor Mendel was actually a monk. And one of the great frustrations of science today is that Sir Isaac Newton, this great mind, spent so many of his latter years not doing science, but doing theology. Their works speak constantly with metaphors like the book of nature, the revelation of God's character through the creation, and the glory of the creator being revealed. Johannes Kepler described his book, or his work, as merely thinking God's thoughts after him. They viewed their work, their science, as acts of worship. Far from being a restricting force on science, Christianity was the main reason that it was able to go forward. One of the great contributions was the demythologizing effect of Christianity which I admit sounds funny when you first think about it. How can a religion have a demythologizing effect? But it becomes more obvious when you think about what other religions at the time looked like. Christianity says rocks are not God. Rivers are not God. Frogs are not God. Cows are not God. If nature is essentially divine, as these, many of these other religions said, then it is not something that can be studied or even comprehended. Not only that, if nature is either divine or completely chaotic, right, if there's nothing behind it, then it can't at all be predicted. But Christianity says that the river is just a river. The animal is just an animal. But it was all organized by a great mind. It can be understood, it can be predicted, but it can also be studied and analyzed and cut open without offense. There are three great ideas that Christianity gave us that allowed modern science to develop. The first is the intelligibility of nature, the idea that nature can be understood. Because God is a rational mind, he created the universe with order. The great founding scientists spoke of the book of nature, which contrasts with the book of Scripture, as a source of revelation about God. By seeing nature as a book, they were saying something very important. It can be read. The second great idea was the order of nature, that things are ordered, things are regular, that God created in order means that things can be understood through the application of mathematics. The earth isn't floating randomly in space. Its movement can be understood and analyzed. Our bodies are creations of great order. The cell is like a tiny city inside your body. 
This idea came straight from Christianity. Third, and possibly most importantly, the contingency of nature. The idea that things don't have to be this way. This is what tripped up the Greeks. Their absolute belief in logic meant that whatever way they determined made the most sense for the world to be meant must be the way that the world is. Because how could the gods possibly have ordered the the world in any way except the most logical? Remember the four elements, right? The, The series that we just finished. That they thought the world was made of fire, water, earth, and air. They were on the right track, right? The idea that the world is made of elements But then they just stopped. They went, oh, this must be the way that the world is, and then they stopped, because that must be the way that the world is. Christians believe that there are many ways in which God could have created and ordered the universe. So rather than simply sitting back and thinking through what is the best way, it instead became necessary to go out and find out which way God chose to create. For example, Christians didn't just go, yes, the world is made of elements, very good. They concluded they needed to go find out what those elements were. And so we have a periodic table. In addition, and coupled strongly with this idea of the contingency of nature, is the idea of fallible human reasoning. Christianity teaches that humans are corrupted by sin even in our reasoning. Again, this is something that the Greeks would not have grasped because the Greeks separated strongly between the corruption of the physical and the purity of the mental. What seems best to us is not always true. Look at the culture around us and tell me that's not true. As a result, when Christians started to do science, they couldn't just trust that their reason had led them to the right answer. They had to test their ideas. They had to see, not just if they had a good idea, but if that idea lined up with the way that nature really is. And so Christianity and its doctrine of fallen humanity led to all sorts of things that we consider essential in our lives today. From something as large as the various checks and balances placed on the power of government, down to something as seemingly small as the invention of double-entry bookkeeping to guard against both errors and embezzlement. I'm not kidding. Far from being an impediment to science, Christianity is the reason science was able to flourish in our world. I am a great admirer of science. I believe it is the second best thing to ever happen to humanity. But it cannot possibly be first because it owes its existence to the best thing to ever happen to humanity, Christianity. So I hope that when this question comes up in your life, you're able to see it differently. Are the Bible and science in conflict? Far from it. Science owes its very existence to the Bible. Sure, we have questions about some things, but the essential life-shaping questions aren't at issue. It is a question that we can approach in faith, trusting that the outcome will be ordered and good because of what we have seen before and the one who we know orders all things. Let's pray. Lord, that was a lot. I'm sure many of us are feeling like a a bird trying to drink from a fire hose. But Lord, you are the one who opens minds, who opens hearts. Build our faith, God.
Lord, thank you for the blessing of science. Thank you for how your word and your teachings have fostered in our world the ability to understand and analyze and grow and build. Lord, we are grateful today for the advancements of science and that we owe them to you for what you have given us. We pray, Lord, that you would guard our hearts and minds as we go into the world, as we have big questions come across our path, Lord, that we would approach them in faith and not in doubt because we know you. Remind us of that this week, Lord. We pray all this in your name. Amen.